This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Hey, Dad, I got your text back in the warehouse. I have a truck loading. It needs to be done by noon. Would you sit down? Can it wait? I, I don't think I have time. It'll just take a minute. Okay. What's up? Your brother's back, Chris. Andy? Andy's back? Here? Is he all right? He's fine. He showed up late last night. Just showed up in a taxi. I spent the whole night talking to him. Boy, does he have a story to tell. Well, nice of him to drop in. Did he happen to mention where he's been since June? A lot of places, but it doesn't really matter now. He, he's home. What do you mean it doesn't matter? I, I'm saying I've thought through all the issues, and I think it's best if we just put them all behind us. Well, so, I mean, that's fine, but it's not like nothing ever happened here. I mean, he did disappear for eight months. Doesn't that bother you? It was nine and a half months. And of course it bothers me. I'm saying, let it go. Well, what did he do with the money? Did he buy the franchise? Yes, he, he bought into it with some friends, and it didn't work out. It failed? Yeah, it never made it. He spent $600,000 on a carpet franchise and it never even opened? No, that was only 300000 The rest was on, well, some other things. Oh, man. He lost it all, didn't he? The idiot lost every penny. He went off and wasted a small fortune, so now he comes crawling back. He did crawl, didn't he? Yes, he did. Or he would have. You see, I didn't want... What are you going to do? I'm going to take him back, Chris. What do you mean you're going to take him back? I'm going to take him back. This is what I've prayed for. We're going to start by having a party for him at the lake on Saturday. You're going to see. He's changed. A party? You're going to have a party for the son who wasted your money and disgraced your name? Yes, he's my son. And it's only money. But my son, your brother, is back. You know, this may come as a surprise to you, but it is possible to be so committed to someone that they can't forfeit your love. Wow. I guess that's the key to getting noticed around here. You see, all this time I thought hard work and honesty and common sense, that would do it. Chris. But now I find out I was all wrong. I guess if you want to get appreciated around here, you go squander a small fortune. You know that's not the way this is happening. He's taking advantage of you, Dad. Can't you see that? He's making a fool out of you. Well, you let me worry about that. It, It wasn't your money he spent, now was it? Fine. Have your stupid party, but don't expect me to show up and support the thing. He's your problem now. Chris! I'd do the same thing if it were you. But it's not me, Dad. Don't you see that? I've never failed you like that. I've never caused you this kind of pain. Tell me what that gets me. Tell me what that's worth. Chris! 
Wait. Many of you will recognize this as a dramatic reenactment of Jesus' parable recorded in Luke 15. And if you have your Bibles, make sure they're open because we're going to be looking at this in detail. And as we walk through our Lord's teaching recorded in this passage, I want to encourage you to be open to the possibility that the gospel, real Christianity, is something very different than religion. I can put it more provocatively than that. If understood rightly, this parable, this teaching of Jesus will stir the pot in any church in America today, including our own. I'm willing to bet that if you grew up in a context where the Bible was taught, you were told a whole lot more about the younger brother than the older brother. Most of the emphasis within the past 50 years or so has been placed on the behavior of the younger brother, his, his flight from home, his rebellious lifestyle, and then his return and his father's acceptance of him. God welcomes back the repentant rebel. That's been our understanding of this story. Now, while that's certainly true, it misses half the message of the story because there are two sons, not just one. And Jesus uses this story, he uses this parable to show us there are two different ways to be alienated from God. Two distinct ways to run from God. Two ways to avoid God as Savior and Lord. There are two ways to be a non-Christian. There are two ways to be lost. There's a younger son way to be lost, and there's an older son way to be lost. You can be lost either by being really, really bad, or you can be lost by being really, really good. Now, the context for Jesus' recitation of the story is incredibly important to picture. He's teaching to a mass of people and they divide into two groups. You see this in verses one and two. There are tax collectors and sinners and there are Pharisees and teachers of the law. Two groups of people. The tax collectors and sinners were the moral outcasts of the day. They marched to the beat of their own drummer they did not play by the rules. What's incredibly important to notice is that Jesus, throughout his ministry, throughout his life, possessed a magnetism with the moral outcasts of society. They were constantly drawn to him. The Pharisees, teachers of the law, stood in sharp contrast to the tax collectors and sinners of the day. They held to strictly to the traditional morality of their upbringing. They studied the scriptures, they obeyed the scriptures, they worshiped faithfully, they prayed constantly. So the two sons in the story each represent a different group. 
The younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners. The older son represents the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And the story neatly divides into a two-act play. So let's retell it. Act one is the younger son. It begins with him making an extraordinarily bold request that his father give him all the property and the material possessions that will eventually be his anyway. Now there are two reasons why this request is so strikingly callous. The first is that in Jewish custom a father's possessions were not given away until he died. It's an inheritance. It was not distributed until dad was dead. So his younger son is treating him as if he's already dead. The second reason why this request is so strikingly callous is that all the son, the younger son really cares about is his father's stuff. It's what he wants. He doesn't want his father. He doesn't want his father. He wants his father's stuff. Well, the son's request is granted and they go their separate ways. In many ways, I think it illustrates that God often does give us over to the desires of our hearts. The goal being to show us that what our hearts want most is not the answer. Well, the son takes his inheritance and he converts it into cash and proceeds to squander it all away in a display of incredibly undisciplined behavior. So the parable paints a picture of a young man, probably in his teens, on a spending spree, investing in things of little worth. Now his, his problems are compounded when a famine strikes the land and he's got nothing, nothing. He's portrayed in bleak terms. The, the phrase in the, the original is very simple. He was in need. He's got nothing. He's got no shelter. He's got no food. He's hungry. He's cold. He's wet. He's smelly. He's homeless. So in desperation, he takes a job tending to a herd of pigs, which for a Jew would have been an incredibly dishonorable and humiliating job because pigs were considered unclean animals. So verse 16 is the lowest point for this young man. He longs to eat what the pigs are eating, but he can't even have that. So after contemplating his predicament, he comes to his senses. It's the way Luke phrases it. This is... This is now the attitude of repentance that's starting to take root in his life. He comes to his senses and he realizes that even his father's hired hands who work for minimum wage have more than he does. So the man begins to develop a plan and part of that plan includes a confession to admit his sin against his father and against God. And then a request, a confession, and then a request that he be made one of his father's hired hands. Now this is interesting. A hired hand, or sometimes they were called day laborers, were, were, were uh, men with trade skills, either with wood or metal. But these, these day laborers, these hired hands, were different than the household servants. The household servants lived on the property. The hired hands lived in town by themselves. A servant in that day was treated like part of the family. Day laborers were not. Hired hands were not. They were thus less cared for. So the son is willing to become the lowest of the low. He assumes he's lost his place in the family. He assumes that even a request to be a servant, a household servant, is asking too much. So he is taking the position of becoming the lowest of the low. This is his mindset. 
So he sets off, he returns home. And when his father sees him at a great distance still, the father breaks out into an all-out sprint. Now within a Jewish patriarchal society, men did not run. Children ran. Men did not run. The sight of a man running would have been considered undignified. And yet he's moved to such an intense degree of compassion for his son that he can't help himself. And as his father approaches him, he embraces him. The son begins to pray this prayer of confession. He says, Father, I have sinned against you and I have sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I would very much be indebted to you if you let me become a hired hand, a day laborer. I don't even need to live with you or, and the father interrupts. You'll notice that the son never finished his prayer of confession, nor did he ever get to his request. The father interrupts him. And he calls to one of the servants to retrieve a robe. It was formal wear. Now keep in mind, this man's been living with the pigs. He's dirty, he's messy, he's smelly, and now his father has put in a request that he be dressed in a three-piece Armani suit. And not only that, but a ring is placed on his finger, and this ring probably had the family seal on it, representing the son's membership back into the family. And finally, he's dressed in sandals. And the father's most striking request comes in verses 24 and 25. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost, he's found. So they begin to celebrate. This is the younger son. What about the older son? Verse 25 marks the beginning of the second act. And in it we see the internal workings of the older son. The older son is out in the field working. As he's been doing every day from the time he was a young boy. This is where he's been while his brother was off in a distant land blowing his inheritance on frivolous pursuits. He hears music, he hears dancing, and then he calls to one of the servants and says, what is going on? And he's given the answer. Your younger brother has come home. Your father has thrown him a party. (laughs) The older son is not at all happy about what's going on here. In fact, he's irate. So much so he can't bring himself to enter into the house and participate in the festivities. So right now, in this moment, we have a great reversal that's happened. The son who was on the outside is now on the inside. The son who thought he was on the inside is now on the outside. Well, the father sees his older son out in the field, pouting. He pursues him. This is what God does. He pursues and he pleads with them, come in, participate in this. But his older son will have none of it. In fact, he proceeds to insult his father in verse 29. The older son does not address his father as father, but instead simply uses the word look. (laughs) You can picture it, can't you? Index finger raised, teeth gritted, look. 
And he says, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. Now the father at this point has every right to confront his son about his lack of respect. But instead addresses him tenderly as my son, my son. So even the face, in the face of disrespect, the father is demonstrating grace and mercy and compassion. And he attempts to try to get him to see the reason for the party. How's the story gonna end? Is the older son gonna see things differently? Will he finally go into the house and celebrate his younger brother's return? We don't know. Jesus ends the parable. And he does so deliberately. The two sons represent two different ways to run from God. They represent two different ways to avoid God as Savior and Lord. Two different ways to be lost. We can be lost either by being really, really bad or we can be lost by being really, really good. The younger brother, we might say, represents relativism. The older brother, moralism. The younger brother represents irreligion. The older brother represents religion. Now it's hard for us to realize this today, but when Christianity first arose in the world, it was not called a religion. It was the non-religion. I want you to imagine it with me. You're living in the Roman Empire. You're a Christian. You've got Roman neighbors. One of your neighbors comes up to you and says, where's your temple? And you say, we don't have a temple. And they say, but how can that be? Where do your priests do their work? And you'd reply, we don't have priests. But, but, but where do you go to make sacrifices, to, to, to please your gods? And you would say, we don't have to make sacrifices anymore. You would say, Jesus himself was the temple to end all temples, the priest to end all priests, and the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. No one had ever heard of anything like this before. So the Romans called Christians atheists. Because what the Christians were saying about spiritual reality was unique and could not be classified with the other religions of the world. It was the non-religion. So I've taken shots at the term religion before and for this reason I'm doing it again. And I'm gonna do so by giving attention to the older brother. Because by and large he's been neglected. All the focus has been given to the younger brother. So today we're looking at the older brother. 
And as we do so, ask yourself this question. Am I a Christian or just religious? Let's look at five characteristics to religion. Let me read starting in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Five characteristics of religion. Number one, religion objects to outsiders receiving God's grace. If you were to hear a story about someone who lived a rebellious lifestyle for years, and they came to follow Jesus, how would you respond? Would you celebrate? Would you rejoice over it? Or would you begrudge them? Would you sneer at those who celebrate the repentant rebel? The father in the story is showing us how God the father responds when a sinner repents. What does he do? He throws a party. He throws a party. He celebrates. Do you? Religious people dislike it when outsiders Moral outcasts are the recipients of God's grace. Would you celebrate if someone who engaged in a homosexual lifestyle for years came to his or her senses, repented of their sin, and became part of our church? Would you celebrate? Would you rejoice with them? God would. Are you a Christian or just religious? Second, religion discourages ministry to outsiders. Religion discourages ministry to outsiders. Religious people, older brothers, are easily identified in their opposition to churches doing ministry in a way that seeks to minister to outsiders. The older brother absolutely despises how much attention his father is giving to his younger brother. He absolutely despises how he's channeling resources to put on this party. He doesn't like anything about this. The music, the dancing, the food, the red carpet treatment. And you notice in the older brother, it doesn't take long before he asks a question. It's the what about me question. Father, I see you doing this, all, all this stuff for your rebellious son, this moral outsider, but what about me? What about me? Underneath the veneer of moral fastidiousness, religious people are what about me people. In a church, religious people will often dislike the time and attention given to ministering to moral outcasts. Religious people reveal themselves as they attempt to control ministry in the church, as they attempt to control the resources and where they're being channeled. The older brother wanted more control over what was happening here. 
Religion discourages ministry to outsiders. Third, religion resists integration with outsiders. Religious people tend to be cliquish and unwelcoming. Religious people may form wonderful country clubs but lousy churches. When the father and older brother are conversing in the field, the older brother refers to his younger brother as, did you see it? This son of yours. Parents, you've been here. When your children are behaving wonderfully, that's my child. And when you see your daughter throwing a delicious temper tantrum on the floor, she's your daughter. This is what's happening here. The father attempts to reverse this mentality And he refers to him as this brother of yours. But the older brother will have none of it. He says to him, he's not my brother. He's your son. He's creating distance. In a sense saying, I refuse to associate with him. I refuse to integrate my life with his. Older brotherness leads to segregation. Older brotherness leads to segregation. Religious people don't like it when they see new people coming to church. Religious people resist integrating with new people, particularly religious seekers. I heard a story once of a pastor pastoring his church and the Lord was giving them a season of growth. Lost people were coming to faith in Christ. New people were coming through the doors on Sunday mornings. And an elderly lady approached the pastor and said, Pastor, we need to reduce the amount of evangelism we're doing in this church. He said, why is that? She said, look around. Look at all these new people. He said, what's the problem with that? She said, they don't belong here. The statement is infuriating and tragic. Religion resists integration with outsiders. Fourth, religion promotes superiority complexes. We could describe the older brother's problem as competitive comparison. Competitive comparison. Older brothers, this is important, listen. Older brothers base their self-image on being distinct. Their value, their worth, their dignity is based on being distinct in some way. Hardworking, members of an elite group, savvy, smart. Older brothers base their self-image on setting themselves apart from others. The older brother felt he had set himself apart from his younger brother. This this older brotherness is at the heart of racism and classism. When my self-image, when my value, my worth, my self-perceived distinction is based on being part of some particular group, I will disparage those who are not part of that group. Or when somebody outside my group receives something I want or I value, I react just like the older brother did when his brother received the party. 
Now, an extreme form of this, an extreme form of older brotherness is 9-11. September 11, 2001. 9-11 is exhibit A of older brotherness. You don't believe as we do. You don't behave as we do. Therefore, death to America. You deserve to die. Racism runs in the same family line as 9-11. It's bred from the same fertile ground of older brotherness as 9-11. You don't look like we do. You don't talk like we do. You don't live like we do. Therefore, you don't deserve to live here, eat here, go to church here, go to school here, or simply, you don't deserve my attention or friendship. Classism runs in the same family line as 9-11. You don't earn as much as we do. You don't have the same level of education as we do. You don't work in the same vocational field as we do. You don't live in the right subdivision. Therefore, you don't deserve this product, this service, this level of treatment. It's older brotherness. It's competitive comparison. It's religion. When my self-image is based on being hardworking, well-educated, being part of some group, I will drift towards disparaging those who aren't part of my group. This is older brother lostness. Religion promotes superiority complexes. There's a fifth characteristic of religion. Let me keep reading though, verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you'll kill the fattened calf for him. Here's the fifth characteristic of religion. Religion paradoxically operates with sinful morality. It paradoxically operates with sinful morality. Why is the older brother so irate? He's not mildly irritated. He is irate. Connect the dots between his vitriol and his words. Why is he angry? Because he thinks he's earned what his brother's receiving. He thinks he's earned what his brother is receiving. What's the older brother's problem? Why can't he accept his brother into the family? Because he thinks he's earned something his younger brother hasn't. In a sense, the the older brother is saying, Father, I'm the one who never left your side. I'm the one who's been here day in and day out, serving you, faithful to you. You owe me. See, moral behavior can be a slight-handed way of manipulating God. That's why it's possible for morality to be sinful. There's an incredible irony in the story at this point that stares us in the face. The younger brother and the older brother had something in common. As different as they are, they had something in common. Both of them were using their father to get something. Neither of them wanted their father. They both wanted their father's stuff. And in the end, the man with prostitutes is saved and the man of high moral standing is lost. How can that happen? 
The problem the older son has is that he's trusting in his self-righteousness to earn him his father's blessing. Both of the sons wanted the same thing. This is how morality can be sin. Using obedience to get God to give you what you want. This is why, by the way, older brother lostness is a greater spiritual threat to humanity than younger brother lostness. Older brother lostness is a greater spiritual threat than younger brother lostness. Why? Because of appearances. On the face of it, an older brother can look like a Christian. They have an appearance of godliness. But Jesus is giving us a terrifying warning. On judgment day, there will be morally fastidious people who won't be part of the celebration. There will be morally structured people who will be left standing in the field. I think we'll be surprised at who we see in heaven. I think we'll be more surprised at who we don't see. Are you a Christian? Or just religious? What does this parable teach us about the nature of a true Christian, of true Christianity? It doesn't give us an exhaustive description, but there are three attributes we see in this parable about the nature of true Christianity. The first is humility. Older brothers, religious people, divide the world into two groups, okay? Older brothers, religious people, moralists divide the world into two groups. And they say the good people like us are in and the bad people who are the real problem in the world are out, okay? Older brothers, Religious people, moralists, divide the world into two groups. They say the good are in, the bad are out. Younger brothers, relativists, irreligious, also divide the world into two groups. And they say no, the open-minded and the tolerant are in, and the bigoted, narrow-minded people who are the real problem in the world are out. Open-minded people are in, narrow-minded are out. But in Jesus' story, both sons are lost, so they're both out. They're both out. Those who say the good are in, the bad are out, out. Those who say the open-minded are in, the narrow-minded are out, are out. Jesus says something entirely different. He says the humble are in, and the proud are out. The humble are in, the proud are out. Luke 18, we'll look at this next week. Jesus said, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt their moral standards are out. Those who exalt their open-mindedness are out. The humble are in, the proud are out. The one who can say and truly believe I am more sinful, flawed, and messed up than I can possibly imagine, is in. That's a Christian. Second, 
A true Christian will repent for something besides sins. A true Christian will repent for something besides sins. At the end of the parable, the older brother is lost, but there's nothing, so to speak, on his sin list. Not like his younger brother, because he's the one who's maintained moral conformity. In fact, the father never challenges or confronts him with some specific sin. So how does a person who's lost with no sins on the list get saved? The difference between a Christian and a religious person is this. Both Christians and religious people will repent for the things they've done wrong. Both Christians and religious people will repent for the things they've done wrong. But only Christians will repent for the reasons they did right. Christians, religious people, repent for things they've done wrong. But the difference between the two is that a genuine believer will repent for the reasons they did good things. In other words, the difference between an older brother and a true believer is inner heart motivation. You're an older brother if you think, if I obey God in all these areas, he'll bless me with eternal life. You're an older brother if you think if I'm faithful to the Lord, he'll bless me with a good life. There's a story in the classical music world that illustrates this wonderfully. Antonio Salieri, a classical composer, um, not well known for reasons you'll see in a minute. Towards the beginning of his career, In composing music, here's what he said. This is a quote from him. He said, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. And after I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life and I will help my fellow man all I can. Amen and amen. So he begins this, his life under this vow to God. He keeps his hands off women. He works diligently at his music. He teaches many musicians for free, tirelessly helps the poor. His career goes well and he believes God's keeping his end of the bargain. And then Mozart appears <laughs> with musical gifts superior to his. He had a genius clearly bestowed on him by God. Amadeus, Mozart's middle name, means beloved by God. And yet he is vulgar, self-indulgent. He's a younger brother. Mozart's a younger brother. The talent, though, that God lavished on Mozart precipitates a crisis of faith in the older brother heart of Salieri. His words, Salieri's words, when Mozart appears on the scene, he sees what's unfolding around him. Salieri's words are remarkably close to the words of the older brother. This is what Salieri said. It was incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift. And there was Mozart indulging his in all directions, even though engaged to be married and no rebuke at all. At the end of this, Salieri said this, quote, from now on, God, you and I are enemies. And he worked from there on out to destroy Mozart. Salieri's diligent efforts to be chaste and charitable were ultimately revealed to be profoundly self-interested. God and the poor were just useful instruments. 
He told himself he was sacrificing his time and his money for the, for the poor's sake, for God's sake, but there was actually no sacrifice involved at all. He was doing it for his own sake to get fame and fortune and self-esteem. The difference between a lost older brother and a real Christian is that real Christians repent for the reasons they did right. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't repented for the reasons you've done right, maybe today's the day you do so and you come home to the Father. Third, a true Christian realizes acceptance is based on grace. This is clearly seen in the father's loving, enthusiastic, and welcoming reception of his younger son. The younger son did nothing to merit the red carpet treatment he receives. His moral resume is blank. His moral bank account reads zero. The only thing he's done is repent, acknowledge his sin, that's it. And he experiences entry into the party on the basis of grace. On the basis of that's what the father is like. We see this clearly in the younger son, but do we see this in the older son? Yeah, we do. It's a bit hidden. Verse 31, my son, addressing his older son, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. (laughs) Everything I have is yours. So the, the older son still has one thing to learn. His acceptance with his father is not based on his obedience. His acceptance with his father is a gift conferred on him. And everything the father has conferred on him is done through one way. How does he get it? By joining the banquet. That's it. Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. How does he get this? How does he get it? How does the older son get it? By joining the banquet. That's it. That's it. Walk in the house, celebrate, participate, join the banquet. But in order for him to do this, you realize how hard this is for the guy like this? In order for him to do this, he has to let go of an awful lot of who he is. In order for him to join the banquet, he has to acknowledge the place of priority given to grace. If he receives the benefit of the banquet, it won't be because he merited it. And that's why he can't go in. If he receives the benefit of the banquet, it'll be because his father has conferred on him the benefit of the banquet. It's a gift. But receiving a gift of this magnitude requires an awful lot of letting go of who we are. So here we have it. One of the most, if not the most, radical teachings of Jesus. We have in front of us a contrast between Christianity and religion. Where are you? Are you a Christian or just religious? Let's pray. Jesus, we relish your words to us. They are clarifying and challenging, invigorating and uncomfortable. Your words to us are light that allow us to see spiritual reality. And we are grateful, Jesus, you have spoken. 
So I pray for the person here, Jesus, whose conscience has been pricked, whose heart has been convicted. Perhaps they've operated under the assumption that they're genuine believers, but underneath the facade lies an older brother heart. Jesus, would you rip out that heart and put a new one in its place? When fashioned by your grace, one that beats with humility and a heart that is quick to repent for ugly motives that lie underneath the surface of our good deeds. It's a radical procedure. But Jesus, you wouldn't be telling us this story if this new reality isn't something you can produce in us. So do it. And we'll be quick to give you all the glory for it. In your name we pray these things. Amen.